Hey everyone, this is Mike Skinner. I want to welcome you to the sermon podcast for Sweetwater Christian Church. We are glad that you are interested in joining us as we follow Christ. If you'd ever like to support our ministry financially or just learn more about us, head on over to sweetwaterchristian.org. Thanks and God bless. Trepidation for some. Others, my older sister still wants to sit at the kids' table. Has something to do with sitting next to me, I'm not sure. Um, most of us want to graduate out of uh, that table. Um, imagine, though, for a moment, being a child who's come out of the um, foster care system, um, being a child who's come out of uh, a life of, of, of being an orphan, and for the first holiday uh, in his life, uh, he gets to sit at the kids' table of his new parents. doesn't have to sit at the kids' table, right? He gets to sit at the kids' table. And this is why we've gathered here this morning. This is why we come every Sunday. Now, the climax of our, our time of worship together is not with preaching. It's not even with singing. Um, is at the table. That's when we come and we um, worship Christ's sacrifice for us in action, um, in bread, and in um, drink. And uh, in our text this morning, Paul will be talking, continue to talk about um, what it means for you and I to be children of God, to be sons of God, um, that we have been adopted into God's family, that we are now no longer correctly identified as slaves, or as orphans, or as scared, fearful, lost children, but instead as his sons, his daughters, and all the rights and privileges and amazing things that come because of that. Um, We're going to pick up in chapter 4, verse 21. Um, And up to this point, Paul has been talking just about this. He's been comparing a life of slavery that human beings naturally find themselves in to all kinds of various things, sin and death, Um, We find ourselves enslaved to the law at times. Um, Paul, in the beginning of chapter 4, talks about how um, humans are enslaved to the elemental um, principles of the world, how we can kind of become enslaved just to the way we think the world has to work, the way we have to live in the world. Um, And he said, instead of all of this, we've been freed and we've been adopted. We haven't just been freed and then left as orphans. We've been freed and then brought into the family. That God's um, pull throughout history has always been towards adoption. This is kind of the heart of God's work in history, through his son and through his spirit. That the plan all along that you and I are now participating in was that the family of God, the relationships of perfection God has within himself as father, son, and spirit would always be opened up so that others might be brought in. And you and I are those others, children of promise, freed children, adopted sons and daughters of God, those who have faith in Christ. And this morning, Paul will continue that theme um, by referring back to an Old Testament story that might not be as significant to us as it was to the people in the first century. Um, I'm guessing, I don't know, but I'm guessing that when things happen in your life, you don't often go, you know, this reminds me of Hagar and Sarah from Genesis. This is just a perfect little illustration of what happened there with Ishmael and with Isaac. Um, Not too significant for us, but for Paul and for the people in the first century, this story would have had really profound meanings and implications in their life. And so Paul will look back at the Old Testament to continue his discussion of what has happened now in Christ and who we are now because of Christ. So let's pick it up together in Galatians chapter 4 verse 21. The Apostle Paul writes this, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. 
If you don't know this story, Paul's referring to a, a text in Genesis, um, one of the, um, the patriarch of the, the Jewish faith, Father Abraham. Um, God had come to Abraham and given him a promise. He said, I'm going to bless you so that you can be a blessing to all of the nations. This is on the heels of the Tower of Babel. So humanity is scattered and confused. And God says, I'm going to bring back the nations together. I'm going to do it through Abraham. I'm going to do it through his children. I'm going to do it through his heirs. And Paul's already identified the true heir of Abraham as Christ. Christ is the one who has come to bring blessing to all of the nations. Well, one of God's promises to Abraham was that he would have a child. He'd have a son. Um, and his sons, his descendants would eventually be as expansive as the stars in the sky. And as, as God told Abraham that promise, Abraham's response was to say, are you sure the circumstances on the ground here don't look as exciting as potential for this promise to come true? Abraham's like, look, I'm, I'm really, really old, and my wife is really, really, really old, and she's been barren her whole life. So this, this promise you're giving us seems... Um, like a, 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 something of faith that we need to accept. And so Abraham and Sarah, for a while, do their best to trust in the promise of God. And it's not a promise that gets fulfilled right away. They have to kind of walk in this uh, tension and uncertainty, holding on to the faith that they have in God. If you remember, at one point, the promise gets repeated to Sarah, and she responds in laughter. Not the laughter of a good joke that's been told by a handsome pastor, Thank you. <laughs> That's much better. But the kind of laughter that has maybe a little bit of bitterness in it, some pain and some resentment. And so Sarah decides that to really make sure this promise comes true, she's going to take things into her own, or her own hands. And so um, now it's easy for us to look back on stories like this and kind of look down our nose at these people, but this is often the case in our own lives. We think God wants to do something for us, and we think, you know, he might want to work through our actions. Maybe he's not waiting on us just to sit on the couch and to materialize. Maybe he's wanting to work through us. And so Sarah says, I have an idea how we can get our son and keep this promise going. And so she had a slave, a maid servant named Hagar. And she gave Hagar to her husband Abraham as a gift and said, you lay with Hagar and we'll have a son. Now, this is not the type of gift you're interested in, for this Christmas, this holiday season. Um, it sounds to us fairly immoral, pretty off base, off kilter. For the ancient people in the ancient world, this wasn't actually very scandalous. This was a very common occurrence. Um, the problem, though, for Abraham and for Sarah um, was that this betrayed a, a, a certain lack of trust in God's promise. And so you have Ishmael, who's born, the son of Hagar, the slave woman, as Paul calls her, um, and Abraham. And then eventually God comes true on his original promise. He gives Sarah a child. And Sarah gives birth to a, a boy named Isaac. And Isaac and Ishmael have their own kind of special relationship. And then as time passes down, the covenant promise is clearly passed from Abraham to Isaac. And so there's kind of two streams of people now. Isaac split off into two in his descendants, Ishmael and Isaac, or Abraham did, excuse me. And the covenant goes to one, but not the other. You have a child born of a slave, and then you have a child born from promise. promise. This is what Paul's getting at when he says um, you have a child born of the flesh. You don't need God to do much for this to happen. Abraham and Hagar just get together and it happens. But with a child born of promise, this is something um, that faith produces. 
This is something where God had to kind of miraculously deliver. And he's going to look at this story, and he's going to draw some interesting conclusions from it. He says this in verse 24. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. An allegory is a way of interpreting a text or a story where you take characters in specific instances and you draw them out and compare them to ideas, more universal type truths. We do this a lot, um, sometimes in good ways, sometimes maybe in ways that are more confusing than others. If you've ever heard the story of David and Goliath preached, you've probably heard allegory. Um, when you read the story of David and Goliath and you compare that to a big problem in your own life, and then the, the faith that you might have to be able to conquer or to overcome that obstacle, you're allegorizing, right? Goliath is not your boss at work. He's, he's not a sickness that you've had. David is not your shortcomings, right, and your weaknesses. These are universal ideas that we all experience, right? We all come to obstacles. We all have kind of giants in our life, right, metaphorically. This is how you read stories allegorically. And, and Paul's going to do that now with the story of Hagar and Sarah. He says this, these two women are two covenants, two different promises, two different ways of God dealing with humanity. One is from Mount Sinai. This is where the law of Moses came from. This is the law that the Galatians are being tempted to go under. Instead of just faith in Christ, there's some Jewish teachers in um, the churches of Galatia who are trying to tempt them to become Jewish people, to remain in the, faith, uh, in the people of God, to be circumcised, to undergo um, different dietary laws. Once from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery, she is Hagar. So says, Hagar represents Mount Sinai, the covenant of the law that was made at Mount Sinai. And Mount Sinai, he says, is just churning out, it's a machine, it's a system, churning out children of slavery as Hagar was a slave. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. Um, there's a couple things happening here that give Paul some teeth to what he's saying. Um, so it's helpful for us to know, at this time period, um, most of the Jewish people identified the Gentiles, people who were not Jewish, as the descendants of Hagar. And so you can kind of see why they might come to this conclusion. There were two different types of people in their worldview, those who were in the covenant of God, the Jewish people, and those who were not in the covenant of God. And so the Jewish people, they thought, went all the way back to Isaac, the rightful heirs of this covenant promise. And everybody else comes from Ishmael and associates with him, not inside of this covenant promise. And so when Paul says this, he's probably subverting a pretty strong Jewish belief that maybe the Jewish teachers in Galatia were telling the Galatians. He says, no, 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 actually, the children of Hagar are the ones under the law. And then he says, it's this present Jerusalem that's Hagar. He's talking about the actual city here in the first century, the kind of center of Judaism, the heartbeat of the, the system of law that Paul's argued just enslaves people and doesn't free them. He says, this Jerusalem, this is a mother just, churning out children of slavery. Now, we, we need to be careful here. Just a quick note, because whenever you do an allegory, an allegorical reading, you, by necessity, flatten out characters, right? It's hard to do nuance in allegories. Um, you you kind of take a story, you take it at face value, and you can't fit all the details in to the picture, right? Um, this has been one of the passages used um, more than 
many others to back up, form a foundation for people um, to support and to engage in hateful actions based on an anti-Semitic ideology. Um, You can see perhaps why this is the case. Paul seems to be saying that Jerusalem and the Jewish religion are churning out slaves. Turning out people not what God intended, not children of the promise. It's not a far jump from that to then more universalize that, even more. Well, the Jewish people themselves are working against the purposes of God. There's there's two things happening. They're on the wrong side of this. Um, I'll never forget, years ago I was teaching freshmen in high school, and I was asking them what they were reading in English class, and with a look of exasperation, a student answered, another Holocaust book. And I was like, what, what do you mean, another Holocaust book? And he's like, this is all we've read for like five years. Like basically since we got to chapter books, every assignment in school has been about the Holocaust. I was like, okay, I understand your frustration. There are other things out there to read about. But you have to forgive adults. You have to cut us some slack because that didn't happen very long ago. Like it was, it was, a, it was a blink of an eye in terms of history, world history. And it didn't happen in a place where everyone knew like it was just a ticking time bomb until some really hateful world history uh, atrocity happened. It was a Christian nation. People looked up to to Germany. And so I was like, look, be patient with us. Excuse us for kind of really putting in your face because we, we want you to realize this can happen. I mean, this can happen in a world like ours. This is going to happen with the colors and the TVs and the technology. This can still happen. And you and I live in a world where it's still happening, not on that scale anymore, but it was not very long ago that a worshiping community like ours this morning was broken into, and there are 11 worshipers killed. Why? Because of ideology like this, ideology that would scapegoat the Jewish people. Now, we didn't invent the song of scapegoating the Jewish people. We just hear this tune still repeated. It's been going for a long time. Humanity has had this weird, horrible propensity to scapegoat the Jewish people for most of their problems at different places and at different times. So it might be important to note, if you were to actually go back to Genesis, the story's not this simple, right? Hagar and Ishmael aren't just negative characters. Hagar herself is given a place of honor, even though she's outside of this kind of covenant lineage, God protects her. There's a small but real tradition where she is upheld as someone virtuous. Ishmael, again in the Genesis text, is not vilified quite the way he gets vilified in later traditions. Even though, again, he's outside of the covenant promise, God blesses him and offers protection for him. Actually, in the story itself, Ishmael is a free child. That's how that system worked back then. Just because Hagar had the child doesn't mean he's just a slave for the rest of his life. He would have been a free child. He would have naturally been an inheritor to the things of Abraham had it not been for this arrangement. Now, it's important to note that because just like the, the children who read the Holocaust books over and over again, at times I've been asked why I constantly put a disclaimer on things. I mean, there are seemingly negative statements about Jewish people in the scriptures. And it's because these things still happen. It's because there's a reason we want to go out of our way and be very clear about what we are saying and what we're not saying, what Paul was saying, what Paul was not saying. 
because these things can still be um, acted upon in our world. And it's not necessarily just by people who want to do these things. This is the pernicious nature of ideology like this. If you and I receive a belief that's flattened out without nuance, perhaps we might just pass it on unwillingly to someone else who will then use that as their fuel for hate crimes. That's why it's important for us to realize that the people who killed Jesus were not the Jewish people just universally for all of history. It was a specific group of Jewish leaders in Jerusalem at the first century. Spoiler alert, they're not alive anymore. You can't exact your revenge on them. It, in some ways, goes against most of what Jesus stood for to try to do that. Jesus prayed for their forgiveness while he was being killed. The present-day Jerusalem that, that Paul is talking about here, he's, he's not trying to engage some violent rhetoric towards them. Again, it doesn't exist anymore. Paul is, is less concerned about the people and more concerned about the spirit. That's why I'll say in Ephesians, our battle is never against flesh and blood. Look, if a human being is your enemy, you've misdiagnosed the problem. Our battle's not against flesh and blood, it's against the powers and principalities. It's about the it's against the isms and the ideologies. That's where we engage um, in the, the weapons of the spirit. Uh, but Paul lays out this allegory. So on one hand, you have Hagar and children of slavery under the law. And then he continues, he says, but the Jerusalem above, now he's referencing to Sarah, what we might consider um, heaven. The Jerusalem above is free. And Paul says, she is our mother. By our, he means those of us who have faith in Christ. Those of us united with Christ who have received freedom and adoption sons and daughters. For it is written, and now he quotes from Isaiah, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth, cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be no more than those of the one who has had a husband. Now you, you and I, brothers like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh, Ishmael, persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, Isaac, so also it is now. Again, this is something that gets kind of built up over tradition, this idea that Ishmael persecuted Isaac and that there's this sense of conflict between them because of this. Um, you and I probably are more familiar with associating people groups to Ishmael and Isaac um, when it comes to the Islamic faith. Um, for a very long time, really since the Islamic faith kind of came to power and rose in the, the 7th and 8th centuries, uh, they've been associated in various circles with Ishmael. And Jews and Christians have been associated with Isaac. And this kind of narrative of persecution has kind of kept this um, violent engagement between the two groups, right? It's built into our DNA. We're always going to clash with each other. Again, if you go back to the Genesis text, in the, the, just the original Hebrew, if you're reading it without knowing anything else, it just reads they played together. Like little boys do. Like brothers do. Over time, this is interpreted to mean it was kind of like a teasing play. And then over time, that gets interpreted to being more of like a bullying type thing. Then before you know it, there's this adversarial relationship between Ishmael and Isaac. Again, we just got to be really careful, right? Um, allegories are really useful, but when we flatten things out um, and, and lose sense of the history, um, sometimes we can set ourselves up or set other people up um, for just false ideas, for things that aren't going to um, serve them very well. He says, though, this persecution... 
is being experienced even now by the Galatians. This is something that has been underneath the surface of most of the book of Galatians, but not explicit. We haven't seen it out loud. And it's this idea that, that there's real persecution happening in the churches of Galatia. That when they're having to choose between being circumcised or remaining uncircumcised, taking on them the, the, the yoke of the, the law, or remaining free in Christ, it's not just a private religious decision like you and I make in our homes about things we'll believe in and the way we'll talk in certain language. It had social consequences, had political consequences. It might involve on one side or the other real physical punishment of sorts. It's not an anomaly for these Christians in the first century. He continues, but what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. You and I as Christians, united in Christ, we're not children of slavery. We're not orphans. We're not lost. We're not stuck in the same cycles of destruction and sin and death. We've been set free. We've been promoted to the kids' table. Paul just recently, right before this, said that because of our adoption in Christ, you and I um, cry out, Abba, Father. We recognize God as Father the same way that Jesus recognizes God as his Father. This is found in Romans 8, a very similar passage. He says, Paul here, for those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear. Instead, the Spirit you receive has brought you your adoption to sonship. And by him, we cry, Abba, Father. Paul has been saying this for a while now. But he says, those who are children of the promise inherit all the things that go along with the promise. We haven't really talked yet, though, about what specifically that inheritance looks like. What does it mean that we inherit with the son of the free woman all the promises that God had given him? What does it mean that you and I, united with Christ, are co-heirs, get all the blessings and promises that are Christ? And that's what I'm going to look at this morning um, four things, quickly. Um, four ways that you and I are uh, inheriting the promise alongside Jesus as sons and daughters. What, are, what do we get? What are the benefits of this beautiful relationship? Well, the first one is we get a relationship with the Father. We get, we get God. And we, we mentioned this last week that in a very real way, the gospel itself simply is the gift of God. That salvation is not something God gives us that's external to himself. He doesn't have like a room that he built called heaven that he can give you without any interaction with him. It's been said, if you don't like God, you might not like heaven. Heaven is where God is. Now, some of us, all of us at times, have a difficulty, I think, truly grasping the beauty of the Father. Why it is that that's such good news, that we get God that we get the experience and relationship with the Father that Jesus has had from eternity. People in the scriptures often 
allude to this. David in the Psalms has many beautiful sayings about this. He talks about how um, God is more satisfying than wealth, than the richest of wine or foods. At times he'll say, my soul thirsts for God the way that a deer pants for water. Like that's just that's what I need. He'll say one day in God's presence is better than a thousand days anywhere else. This is the kind of mindset, it's a David type of heart here that would allow God to be such good news. Now, unfortunately, most of us, I think, operate um, default, myself included, um, with a view of God that's not colored entirely by Father. Abba Father. This is what Jesus is making of us. People who learn how to pray like he did in the Lord's Prayer. People who learn how to recognize God as Father. Um, but we, we often come with some other ideas of God from our childhoods, from things we've heard, from just our human nature, how we inherit things and, and think of the divine. Um, two in particular, I think, that often struggle inside of us to take over a loving view of God as our loving Father um, would be, I think, um, and many of us, we often default see God as judge and not father. And there's, there's reasons for this, right? There's, there's some truth here, right? God is seen as the judge in Scripture, and you and I are seen as sinners, and we're guilty, and God as judge pronounces verdicts. He says guilty. And then for those in Christ, he says not guilty. And this is true, and as much as all of those things are true and, and are celebrated, but what's not the case, at least in my experience, is that the image of a judge really produces in you this desire for a relationship. I don't know how much time you spend in courts, hopefully not a lot. I once successfully defended myself against the state of Texas v. Mike Skinner in the wrongful um, giving of an uh, expired registration ticket. And uh, I was successful. It was one of my proudest moments. But the sense I got from the judge, who ruled in my favor, again, over the state of Texas, was that while I was grateful for his decision, he seemed like a fine man, you know, I wasn't just like really going after like a movie with him that afternoon. Like I just, I didn't really, if he invited me on vacation, I probably wouldn't have gone with him. Like it's not the guy I want to go watch like a, a new Marvel film with. He's probably going to sit there and be like, here's all the laws they're breaking. Here's the litigation that's going to come because of all of this. Now, he's just a judge to me, right? I'm sure um, he's a father and a husband and a son to, to others. But, but that relationship between a judge and a defendant, right, is not one that just produces this desire to know and to be around and to enjoy. There's a reason why the creeds don't say we believe in one God the judge, maker of heaven and earth. The creed said, no, we believe in one God, the Father, maker of heaven and earth. There's the judge. The, the other one that's common, I think, out of a handful that, that I could go through is, is the, like a big cosmic Santa Claus. Um, uh, we see God in light of someone who rewards good behavior and punishes bad behavior. So he can give gifts, really good gifts, really big blessings, but you have to kind of be on the right side of the line for this. 
This is also not the type of person that I, I want to spend time with, right? I loved Santa Claus growing up, but I never fantasized about going on a walk with Santa, right, about really engaging in a deep relationship. There is currently some kind of sick, twisted psychological warfare happening against our children in this nation where elves watch everything they do on shelves. And they report back to Santa Claus. I'm not cool with this type of 24-7 big brother surveillance. This army of elves, this view of Santa, right? It doesn't engender the type of relationship that's guaranteed to you and I as, as followers of Christ. We're called to recognize more and more. It doesn't come natural to us all the time. That's why the Christian life is a growth, is a progression. You and I are much like smaller children watching a big brother and learning how to interact with our father. Learning how to approach him. Learning what he expects. Learning the type of language to use. This is how Christ is formed in us. So one of the things we inherit is simply what Jesus has had from eternity, which is his perfect relationship with the Father, the source of all good, all light, all joy, and all peace. The second thing we inherit with Christ is his resurrection life. The scriptures say, just like Christ died and now is resurrected, never to be touched by death again, so you and I one day, because of our participation with Christ, will experience a resurrection as well. When Jesus returns, everyone resurrected, you and I as Christians receiving this imperishable body so that death would never touch us again, that we might live eternally. Again, this is not something you and I just own by nature. This is something given to us because of our union with Christ. What he has because he is Jesus, we have because we are Jesus is. Because we are his people. And so we share in this resurrection hope that is now currently Jesus' present reality. We also, we also are promised that, that we inherit a, a, a new world for eternity. In the scriptures, you can see this in Isaiah 65. You can read about it in Revelation 21 and 22. They imagine eternal life not as a disembodied spirit, but on this new earth, heaven and earth, recreated, joined together, God dwelling with man, man dwelling with God. And we're told, just like we're co-heirs of Christ, we're told in Revelation that we are co-reigners with Christ. We reign with Christ on this new earth. Both of these two promises are, are important, I think, to our formation as Christians here today. The resurrection teaches us that you and I have nothing to fear about when it comes to death. And it's easy to say, it's easy to talk a big game, and then it comes closer to us, and, and we're really tested there. But if the resurrection means anything, it means that people have been set free from the fear of death. I would contend it's impossible to live a truly free life, to be a real child of a free woman without being set free from this fear. Death shadows everything we do. Even when we don't think about it, we try to push it off to the side. It makes us a little uncomfortable. The more, though, that I have thought about and enjoyed and looked forward to the resurrection, the more that I've steeped myself, focused my eyes on Christ and his resurrection, the less death seems like a Lord that masters me. The more I'm opened up to the idea that, that maybe I'm, I'd be okay to sacrifice my own life. 
it takes, I think, this, the second aspect, the new world, to really get us there. I've, I've, I've argued this before in the past. I think one of the things that holds back many Christians is exactly our view of heaven as a disembodied place. And so we, we look for what's the common, lowest common denominator. Um, what do we have to do minimally to be a Christian to get into heaven? And then once we've, we've met that standard, we do as much as we can here. And it holds us back sometimes in our generosity and our willingness to take risk or to sacrifice. Because there's a lot of fun stuff to do on this world, and there's some really cool technology. And if we're honest with ourselves, if I'm honest with myself, I want to experience a lot of it. I don't want to die without getting to see this and do that and go there. But if people might be freed up to give that up if they know that they're going to get it for eternity. That your time enjoying creation and culture, your time exploring and ruling over this beautiful world God has made, does not end at death. If anything, it, it actually really begins in a true way with resurrection, with eternal life. Where we get to experience creation without death, without any traces of sin to perfectly enjoy without restriction what God has created for us to enjoy. Three things we inherit with Christ, the relationship he has with the Father, his promise of resurrection, and the new world that is coming. The last one we see here in the passage, it's not as um, necessarily beautiful to us in our eyes, but we inherit with Christ not only his life, but also his death. Persecution. It's like Paul highlights the persecution the Galatians are experiencing or might experience because of their beliefs and their lifestyle. Those of us who follow Christ are called to suffer, to sacrifice, to deny ourselves. Some are called to offer up their lives as martyrs. It's important for us to recognize that the persecution we might experience for being Christians is not the type of persecution Paul's talking about. Here, it's not the type of persecution that many Christians around the world are experiencing right now. We have to recognize that in our family today, include brothers and sisters who might be asked to give up their life today. But it doesn't make persecution we might experience any less real, though different. One scholar um, said that, that all Christians are martyrs. Martyrdom is not an if question, it's a how much question. We all deny ourselves, or at least supposed to. The question is, how far will we be called to deny ourselves? Some might be called to deny your very own life. Others, are, are, others of us, though, are, are called to deny ourselves in, in different ways. There might be a time coming when you're called to take a stand, to go do some action, it might cost you. It might cost you socially, politically, economically. You have to be willing to sacrifice. And indeed, as Paul says, it seems to be a characteristic of the people of God. It's those who, who are suffering. It's those who take up their cross and then follow after Jesus. You and I, imagine it. Children, freed, adopted. And as we pray and as we come to the table, we come with the same type of bubbly 
energetic joy the child comes to a table that was not always theirs but now is in Christ to a table where we can learn to pronounce and believe Abba Father where we can take hold of the hope of resurrection and eternity that we have where we can be shaped more and more into who we are as those who have been set free and adopted. Will you pray with me?